Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. My guest today is Britt Wiedemann. Britt is the president and owner of IWI Ventures, a company that runs many organizations in the hospitality industry. From being a franchisee of multiple noodles and company locations, forage kitchen locations, and even a coffee roasting company. He's a mentor with our Small Giant Sounding Board program and considers himself the luckiest guy on the planet. Welcome, Britt. Hey, thanks, Paul. I'm delighted to be here today. I appreciate it. All right, well, I got to start with that, what I just said, and tell me why you feel so lucky. Well, I, it, it has been a curious path to be where I am right now, and I seem to have fallen forward out of every opportunity. I have had probably more jobs than I can count, everything from construction to a, a mountain guide to an English teacher in Korea. The list goes on, and... I don't know that it was ever a concerted plan or there was a blueprint to do all these things. It just seemed that the next opportunity presented itself to me every time it should have. So I've been very lucky. I've always said I'm certainly not the uh, sharpest tool in in the shed. I oftentimes am probably not the hardest worker in the room either, but I've been so lucky to be surrounded with amazing people that are committed and passionate. And I, to be a part of those teams has done nothing but continue to move this forward. So that, that's part of why I, I feel so lucky. I don't know that I could have planned this path or, or this career if I had tried to. And just by, Paul, you know what they say, which is you create your luck. But I have to say, I while, while doing the right things, I've been more than fortunate. You know, there's a couple of really great messages there. Um, one, like you said, just doing the right thing. Two is the something that I've felt as as I took many detours in my career, and I just try to convince my 22-year-old daughter that she uh, is okay if she doesn't know exactly what she wants to do yet, that right. um, we got to, in some ways, just let life come to us. And if you have good values, in your case, you obviously have a big dose of humility. Good things are going to happen to you and you, and you create that luck, like you said. Um, and so, uh, yes, it's surrounding yourself with great people, but I think it has a lot to do with your, your sense of initiative and drive. I've loved seeing you over the years at the Small Giants events. You obviously have a great sense of curiosity as well and want to continue to learn. So tell us a little bit about the all these locations of various um, franchises that you have, um, how you kind of jumped into the the restaurant business and and what it's like with all these uh, different types of food and drink that you serve. Sure. You know, again, part of the uh, part of luck is you don't have control over it. And as I was getting things involved in food and hospitality, it was the dawning of the fast casual business model. 
you know, up until then, you either went to a full restaurant with a waiter or waitress or you went to McDonald's. Uh, there was no kind of in-between place. And Steve Ells, the founder of Chipotle, as you know, uh, and my business partner and his roommate, we they started Noodles at the same time Steve Ells started Chipotle and both of them in Denver. And they were contemporaries. And as this brand started to grow you know, fast casual became, well, it's a thing now. Uh, it's a whole, it's a whole different kind of marketplace. And I've been lucky. And, and when that was coming before it happened, I was running a Mexican restaurant in downtown Boulder, Colorado. And my friend had gone over there and gotten a job. They, you know, brand new, they had, you know, no two locations or something. And he came in, had a beer that night. And he's like, you got to check out this company, Britt. It's amazing. Uh, the first thing I'll tell you is that they, as a restaurant, they go home on Friday night at 10 o'clock, they close the doors. I thought that was, well, my restaurant, of course, didn't go home. I mean, last call was at one thirty or two. So <laughs> the, on a Friday night to think I could be home by 11 was <laughs> breathtaking. What? So I, it was almost <laughs> too good to be true. And he convinced me to give it, give it a try. I started with noodles and company when they had about 12 restaurants and they're almost at 500 now. So I've had a chance to see that. And my very first opportunity there was as general manager of a, of the location that was right next to corporate headquarters. And it was the smallest location that we had. It had 22 seats in it. And it was, I considered it the corporate cafeteria. You would see, you know, all the execs over there. But the problem is I would have to ask them to to leave, you know, hey, I only have a certain <laughs> amount of chairs. Do you mind taking your food back so we can have this for other customers? But the joke was in that restaurant, because it was so close to corporate, you either got promoted or you got fired. And I kept getting promotions. It goes back to I was working with people that were just fantastic and they made me look, they made me look really good. And uh, we had to be at a summit one year. And the co-founder, my current partner, comes up to me and says, so I don't know if you know who I am. And of course, that's a silly question. You always know. Yeah. <laughs> you should know who the co-founder is. Uh, yeah, no, I know, who, I know who you are. He's like, well, we just started a franchise program. And I wondered if you'd like to be my partner in that. And and that's kind of where it began to become a transition from, you know, the, the working for someone versus working for yourself. And since then, I've been, again, very lucky to have a number of opportunities. As you said, we have a coffee roasting company. We have a, another concept that's also a fast casual called Forge Kitchens. Uh, it is one that's, uh, and I hate to use other other folks to kind of identify it, but if you know what a Crispin Greens is or Sweet Greens, it gives you an idea of that concept. You know, everything's made to order. has a bit of a different slant for sure. We partner with local farms to get our produce. So we're trying to really do some good stuff for the environment as well. Uh, and we've had another company, which we've recently gotten out of, which is a chocolate company. So we, uh, like I said, it's just a, a bunch of different opportunities that continue. And, and again, it's because I'm with good people. My partner, having started a concept like this, gets tons of folks asking for counsel. And so we get an opportunity to kind of peek and see what what makes sense and maybe what doesn't so it's been a it's been a great busy journey and I, as i said it, i don't know that i could have planned it with forage kitchen where are those locations 
So we just started that, and similar to how Noodles started, two roommates that went to the University of Wisconsin started Forage Kitchen as well. So the, most of our locations are in or around Madison. We have just opened up one in Champaign, Illinois, last year, and we opened up our most recent one yesterday, in fact, in Milwaukee. So got about uh, six locations now, and that's the one that's going to be really trying to get off the ground and do some heavy lifting, get a few of those few more uh, restaurants open here this year. Well, I, I'm a huge fan of grain bowls, and um, so mm-hmm. I may wait till it gets a little warmer and then head out that way to, to one of those locations um, to try it. It sounds it sounds wonderful. Uh, when you establish these new concepts, are you guys uh, starting the concepts from scratch, or are you buying into other organizations' existing concepts? Sure, that that's a good question. You know, it's a little bit of a cherry picking. So noodles, of course, didn't exist. The the founder of that, Aaron Kennedy, you know, that concept was one every culture in the world eats noodles, but there's no place to get them all cultures in one spot. So that was the genesis for that concept. Forage uh, was based kind of backwards. I'm sure that the two founders that started it had heard of the, you know, the crisp and greens and the greens and things folks, but uh, nothing really that they've ever seen or, or touched. So that, that was something they kind of came up on their own based on just let's provide a good product that's healthy for folks. And it kind of morphed into this, to this model. So it's been a, it's been a bunch of different ideas. The chocolate company, for example, that was a guy that was just so creative and was hand making all these incredible chocolates. And again, that, that was Certainly, they're chocolate companies, but nobody was really doing it like this. So I would say the concepts are not completely unique, but the twist is what makes them special. Talking about what makes them special, you now have several hundred employees across all these locations. And Mm -hmm. as much as um, I'm a foodie and I love how we can differentiate by the quality or the uniqueness of our food, I got to imagine that it's also about the overall experience that people have when they come there. And that experience is directly related to the employee experience. Of course, we're very focused in the small giants community around culture and values. So how have you, especially with all these disparate locations, uh, kind of managed to build a culture of consistency across these various concepts? Yeah, that's... (laughs) That's good. Uh, you hit the nail right on the head. And, and you know, the couple quick sayings that everybody's heard, you know, your guests will never have a better experience than their employees are having. Um, that, you know, it, we don't really make mac and cheese, right? That's not hard. Anybody can make it. It's the difference that you get when you get there. And, and so culture has been been really important. And to have it, as you say, in so spread out, it makes it even a bigger challenge. And so it's got to be really part of the DNA of our organization. And it took a minute. I remember one of the first summits that I went to with Noodles, and I almost got in a fight with the owner. I didn't know anybody yet. I didn't know the founder, president. And of course, I had said, you got to have a good product or your business will go out. And they put the flag in the ground on people and culture. And it's the first time that I had, what? What do you mean people and culture? I don't care if you've got a good person working for you if they're serving garbage (laughs) people aren't going to come back but it turns out good people won't serve garbage and i didn't get that early so 
you're exactly right. And, you know, all the books out there, good to great, whatever, get the right people on the bus. It doesn't matter what's thrown at them. They will solve for that. And so culture has been, you know, it's, it's why I'm part of small giants. It's why I've been invested in the Zingerman's groups. All those folks that are employee centric are based on servant leadership. It took a minute to believe it. I knew it, but I didn't believe it. Now I can actually trace financial performance to a store that has got great culture, that the GM is invested in his people, not just what the P&L says. And at first I didn't believe it, but now over the, the course of time that we've done, I've got, I've got evidence to prove invest in your people and the business will take care of itself. It's been tough. I, I, I learned about culture the hard way. A couple ways. Uh, the first time that I really was exposed to culture was when I was in college and I had a part-time job at the Postal Service. And I grew up on a farm and uh, the tenant farmer that lived there and were kind of raised and grooming. And he he instilled a good work ethic, right? Work hard. That's what that's what it's about, and especially on a horse farm. Uh, you do, you're chopping tobacco, you're cutting tobacco, you're bailing hay, you're mucking stalls, you're feeding cattle. I mean, it's work. Well, I go to the post office, my first part-time job, feeling all good. And I roll in there and the semi comes and it's full of mailbags. Well, I unload the thing in about 30 minutes and I am quickly taken aside by one of the older gentlemen there. Old guy brings me aside. Hey, college boy, you messing things up. I didn't, I didn't know the culture at that place and I didn't know how strong it was. And this guy was fiercely protecting that culture. Now I maybe the wrong one, but nonetheless, when there's a culture that people buy into and they're committed to, it is unbelievably powerful. And I learned the opposite end of that when my culture was so entrenched that I had to close a store because everybody walked out and that was the mm. wrong culture there. So Culture can be a double-edged sword in so many ways, and when it is forged in the correct way and welded in that fashion, you can do amazing things. But if not, it can be a cancer that can destroy your business. That's true. You said how you had been transformed and didn't weren't wired that way initially, came to understand the value of culture. Now you're speaking it um, uh, and sharing that. Uh, experience and tying it to financials. You know, in the restaurant industry, uh, we think of people that don't make a ton of money. I, I was in the industry for a few years myself. It's a really tough business. And and you're in a location with, you know, 20, 30 other people, uh, especially like in a fast, casual environment. So do you have a couple examples of what you guys have done to try to enhance that employee-focused culture? So, yeah, uh, you know, one of the first things that we realized, and again, one of those cliches, people don't quit the job, they quit the manager. And we found it was a lot harder to quit your manager or even your, your coworkers when you had a relationship with them. And one of the things that we started doing, and I, it comes through a variety of different names, depending on what your organization calls it, but kind of one-on-ones. And we now are making it mandatory. In fact, we're actually tying it to the bonus that the GMs get is, are you doing good one-on-ones? And what that means is you're sitting down with every single employee on your team and you're digging in and seeing what's going on in their life and their world and how they are. And so turnover, right? We all talk about turnover. 
And at a store where we weren't doing the one-on-ones, where it was, you know, hire a pulse, you know, hire a body to fill a gap. And that is a cycle that unless you can break it is self-perpetuating for a long time. We had over 220% turnover in that location. And by just merely changing a little bit of our training, instituting one-on-ones, I just looked at his numbers a couple of weeks ago. And last year, he finished uh, at 85%. So I don't know how to draw a straighter line to take care of your people and they will take care of you. And that culture comes from being invested in what they do and who they are. That's the secret in culture in my mind. Well, it's actually simpler than that. It's just showing those people that are on your team that you care about them in the totality of their mm-hmm. lives and, and actually stopping to have that conversation. Because when I had my restaurant with my partner, uh, especially in a restaurant, it's just constant movement, right? So mm-hmm. you can't yeah. stop in the middle of the shift and have a one-to-one, right? So it's not like an office environment. And so this requires a discipline to set up time outside, off shift, on a different day or whatever, mm-hmm. then build relationships. And so I'm not surprised at all that you're seeing that change when people and my boss is investing in me to give me the time to have a conversation and I'm not just passing them um, in the restaurant or in the hall, that means everything. And so I think there is a direct correlation there. So it's it's wonderful how you have learned and implemented. And I love the fact that it's actually tied to a bonus because I'm, um, I always talk about one-to-ones, but truly tying it and uh, accountability to that, I think is a, a wonderful idea. It's a great example. So I want to take you back, Britt, because how you're passionate about this really comes through. This has to come from somewhere. So you talked about growing up in a, in a, on a farm and working hard and getting that work ethic, but you know, talk about your parents a little bit. What were some of those early influences. Sure. You know, the Zingerman groups already talks about hope, right? And inspiring hope. And I I was really fortunate. My parents from day one were always, oh, you can do whatever you want. You know, you're good to go. You can. And I didn't realize that was unusual until I got out into the real world and heard so many others that their parents were oftentimes not supportive, not encouraging, not like they were more, I don't know if you do that, you can lose everything. Uh, my parents do it again. And so I didn't realize it until I was thinking about this before we chatted today. And I don't know that I really had much of a choice. My three greats ago, great, great, great grandfather invented Wiedemann beer. My family had the largest department store in the state of Kentucky. My family was a horse. I mean, small business and entrepreneurship and I think was just baked into my DNA. So, and I didn't even know that, uh, you know, I was going to have like a normal job, nine to five, maybe be an attorney or something. But clearly I, I think my lineage, even though I wasn't aware of it, prevented me from doing that. I had to start businesses and kind of be an entrepreneur. And that fact that there was, you know, one of the key ingredients that you know for all entrepreneurs and with your business, uh, certainly I've heard you tell stories at the small giants about there were those dark days. But what you had was optimism, right? You've got to have a positive outlook that, you know, we can get out of this hole regardless of whether we can't make payroll on Monday or not, we will figure it out. And so that sense of optimism, I think, was key for me, at least getting the foundational, you know, kind of DNA 
of small business and being a, being a small business person, you know, and as I said, you know, working on the horse farm that just kind of foundationally put it in. And it's a great practice for being an entrepreneur because guess how many hats you have to wear when you start your own business at the beginning, mm-hmm. your payroll, your HR, your marketing, <laughs> you know, you're hiring, you, you know, you're everybody. Uh, and that's the thing on the farm. You have to learn how to do it all. Repair the fence, you know, birth a, birth a cow or a horse, uh, you know, bale hay. You got, you, you have to have all those skills. You repair a barn roof. And what I've learned now is delegation, of course. But, you know, many of these things, as most entrepreneurs will tell you, sometimes if you want to, do, I just feel like I need to do it myself. So yeah. I think all those things kind of contributed or begin to build. And I guess what I would say is, is thinking about, you know, how are you where you are? Each one of these was just one tool, right, that you continue to put in the toolbox. And I think that was part of the advantage I had is that by the time I got ready, you know, similar to your daughter or maybe a little different, your daughter has a specific degree and she's concerned she's not going to get a job in that. While I had one, too, I felt like I had a lot of things in my back pocket. Well, I could do this if that doesn't work out or I could apply for that if that doesn't work out. I've had a little experience there. So I think all those things help me feel more confident in taking risks. Yeah. What about, uh, I know we talked about the post office, but any other early jobs, uh, that you had that might've had an impact on this gave you that, that, um, diversity so, experience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for a while I, I was a, uh, mountain guide for a organization called the outward bound and they have different yeah. schools. It's, a, it's based on experiential education. It's the first time I learned about, I mean, I think we all know what that is, but never in a formal setting had I heard about it, right? You know, when you get a flat tire on the dark of night in the rain, that teaches you something, right? Um, <laughs> whether you want it to or not, uh, either how to swear better or to be more prepared or make sure you got, you know, your friends on the speed dial. But that said, I, you know, I learned a lot from that. And it, I don't... It's a really, really tough thing to kind of pinpoint down the either one specific thing, but our bound with experiential education, you know, mother nature doesn't care whether you're tall, you're short, rich, poor, she's going to rain on you. And if you don't have your tent set up, you're going to get wet. And the other thing that I learned is, is that when folks come into a new community, a new culture, a new environment, if you don't give them some direction, they struggle mightily with how to assimilate, what to do. And it was the first place I learned about making assumptions and the the actual cost of making bad assumptions. And of course, now everybody trusts the verify. But my first lesson in don't make assumptions about the basic things was uh, day three on our course. We're up above uh, tree line, which means there's snow everywhere. It's early June. I'm with a bunch of young kids. We're hiking every day, you know, 10 or 12 miles. And we get to camp on day three. And one of the students comes up to me and says, and everybody has a nature name, right? You give up your your Christian name or whatever name, and you can be anybody you want out in this in, with where we are. So it's a, a fresh start. And he comes up and he says, Red Bear, I'm really cold every night. And I said, well, you've got this great, you know, Arctic down sleeping bag. You should be totally warm. 
yeah, no, I'm cold. I said, well, have you pulled the hood on the, on the mummy bag? He said, what hood? I said, well, there's a giant string and a big hood and you just cinch it down. And, oh, he didn't know how to use a sleeping bag. Mm. I was stunned. I mean, to me, that was just what, how do you mean you don't know how a sleeping bag works? Uh, and so that was the first, and you know what? I forgot that lesson because I was in a restaurant the other day. I asked in a team member to help sweep up this area. I came back and it looked like hell. I assume they knew how to use a broom. It's very, <laughs> it can get you everywhere. So assumptions, learning that through outward bound through a bunch of different people is not everybody's on your same page. Take the time to make sure they understand what you're talking about, that they comprehend what you're trying to say or accomplish. And many times, that's oftentimes the reason there's not success is because folks didn't really comprehend either your vision or what you expected. And we've spent a lot of time now trying to focus on that component and feel that it's really been valuable in terms of results. That's a great story, Britt. Can you think of a, an unexpected learning from an unexpected source somewhere along the way? Well, well, the unexpected learning, I, I spoke about a little bit earlier from my, my guy at the post office who said, <laughs> slow your roll, big fella. You're breaking it for all of us. But I, I would say that happens almost all the time. And the last one I had happen was actually from an employee. And I generally, when I come into a restaurant or whatever, try to greet and talk to folks, everybody on the whole shift that's talking there. And something happened as I was leaving and I didn't have an opportunity. I grabbed my stuff and I left the restaurant quickly and I didn't say goodbye. And I heard about that. And that was an unexpected learning that people actually give a shit more <laughs> than you realize mm -hmm. that your involvement and your caring of them is actually more than you think. And it's not a burden uh, to, to them to deal with the boss or the owner or whatever. It's more of a privilege. And if you take that away from them, it hurts them. And I just assumed they wouldn't care if I didn't say goodbye. And you know what? That was a bad assumption again. And it was an unexpected learning from a time and a place that I, I actually thought I was beyond. And you know what? You're never beyond recognizing and saying hello to the team members that are doing what, you know, making, making it happen. It's such a basic thing that, um, yeah, you would never have thought that you would even hear about that, but you did. And you found that was really what was important to them was really important to them. And, and that became a learning for you. And, and I had a call center business, you know, hundreds of people out on the floor. And I, I always, uh, um, was a reserved kind of leader. And so it took effort for me to get up mm -hmm. out of my office and just go walk the floor. And I would see these, you know, these eyes peering out above the cubicles, <laughs> that, you know, like the boss is walking by. Right. Yep, and I, on. but I, yeah, I just I just realized that that and I put a little post-it note on my computer and I said walk the floor. And I would just get up and I'd go out there and all I'd have to do is just walk by and and say to somebody, How's it going? You know, just check Why in with them. Us and, leaders you know, feel that's hard though. I completely relate to that and I, I struggle with why that why we struggle with that. I don't know. I don't know. I think for me it's just maybe my, you know, my introverted 
personality or, or, and also I think there's a sense of humility too. Like it's not, I'm not that important. It's not a big deal. They don't really care. Um, but they do care. And, and, uh, and it's those little touches that, that mean so much to them. Um, you know, to today, um, you know, uh, I'm curious as you, as you continue to expand and grow and, and maybe you guys will get into other concepts as well. You know, how did you guys manage through the, the pandemic? Are you, do you consider that behind you, uh, you know, any permanent changes in the way you do business? For sure. That, that was a seminal event in our industry and it was very telling. And here's one quick story that I will tell you. I understood the significance of how that manager, the general manager was feeling based on when I went to the store. If I went to a store and they didn't have the plexiglass up and they either were haphazard wearing the masks like under their nose or whatever, I knew that store was going to be open, not really have a bunch of problems. I'd go to another store that would put the garbage cans in front of the cashier statement so we or the register so we can continue to increase that six feet space. Mm. Ones that had made their restaurant look like a bunker, closed off the restrooms, they actually quit. And they didn't take another job in this industry. That pandemic chased them out of this entire industry forever. They left completely. And that was an interesting exodus to see. And I, it wasn't based because that town was more susceptible to it or not. It was their emotional psyche on, you know, the, the, I, I cannot deal with this. It was a game changer uh, for sure. It also meant it, it was the beginning of the one-on-ones. I didn't realize how fragile people were through that time growing up on a farm, uh, calluses you up and, you know, my mother would say, stand up and be somebody, pull yourself together. And you know what? That's not what people wanted to hear. And it wasn't very effective. In fact, it pissed them off, uh, when you, when you told them that. So it, it was a great learning for me. We turned over a, ton of employees there, folks that realized this is not what I can do or I don't feel comfortable in it and others that actually thrived in it. So it was, it was quite a watershed event in, in for us anyway, especially in the retail side. And because restaurants of course had that, had that magical card, we were a central business, right? So while everybody else did shutter the doors, we didn't. And I mean, for payroll, I've never seen wages increase so quickly, so fast as they did through that time frame. Um, you know, what would take people normally a year or two to get, they could get in about, I don't know, three weeks uh, mm-hmm. in terms of pay raise because for it, I'm not coming back tomorrow. You know, yeah. uh, stimulus checks chased a lot of people out of the workforce that yep. normally yep. would have been there. So it, it was a game changer for us, for sure. And I'll tell you, the worst part is, is our people wanted communication, right? What's going on? Well, you tell me on March 20th, 2000, and, you know, what you knew was going on. Could you have really predicted it? I didn't have anything. <laughs> and yet, even that would have been a good thing to tell them. But uh, when there's a crisis, people want to know what's going on. And even if you don't know it, you need to share that. They appreciate that. What they don't appreciate is radio silence. There's, uh, and that's that's any time, not just the pandemic. But I, sure. I, I remember back. I remember back during those days during the pandemic, and I was a, a part restaurant owner at the time. 
and we we were in a you know a town in Southern California, and we actually pulled together a peer group of uh, independent restaurant owners, and I facilitated a weekly call. Uh, just to try to help as people were just going, I have no idea what's happening. Did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? I mean, and so it was it was hard to go back to employees and tell them what was going on when you had no clue and everybody else, you know, we're all concerned about survival. So um, lots that came came out of that. Can you talk, Britt, about maybe a, a, a humbling experience that you've had? You talked about how you had to close a restaurant because of an employee walkout. What happened there? Yeah, that, that, that was amazing. Uh, that, that was probably one of those. And again, coming from a place where you feel like you're employee centric, this, this could not have chopped me off at the knees any, any worse. And it was all based on culture. It was all based on personalities. It was during the pandemic. So everything had been completely heightened. And what I didn't realize is the culture that you try to encourage and grow and put out there, oftentimes there's a subculture, there's a secondary culture that's going on underneath that, right? And unless you're either, you know, completely congruent from stem to stern uh, on your culture, these pockets, these cliques, these, these groups can be amazingly powerful. And if you don't address those issues, well, they, they did what I did when the manager left and had the loyalty, right? Cause that's what it was based on. Their culture was based on loyalty when that, when that happens and loyalty is not really culture, right? I mean, it may be a part of it, but that's not a culture. When that happened, you know, 12 people walk out. And at that point, you know, we had 30 on, so maybe half our staff left, but I realized at that stage we need to start from scratch. This should not have happened, right? This was based on people being frustrated with what we were doing and how we were doing it. There was a lack of communication. I mean, it exposed a number of, you know, cracks in the armor on what we thought we were doing versus what was actually happening. And, and it was one of our busiest stores. So it was a very stinging learning because it, it literally cost tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to get it right. Now that store right now, I'll put it up against any restaurant in the country. Got the best culture. It's got the highest sales, but that road takes a minute to go down. It took us almost a year and that's a long time, but. And, and how did you, how did you do that? How did, did you do that through obviously listening and understanding, you know, it was Correct. New, you know, bringing a new, a new team. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. All that we yeah. got, you know, the problem with having restaurants was so far spread out locations, it's hard to be there every day, all day long. And I, I still travel to locations every single week to see them because I, I know how powerful that is. And so we did a, multiple things. We brought in, we, we brought in folks that we knew should be on the bus, right. That were aligned with our beliefs, that were aligned with our purpose, that were aligned with our our goals, right? This next thing we did is we actually spent time working with them. Not, okay, glad you're here. Off you go. Mm -hmm. No, we're going to be shoulder to shoulder with you on this. And the other thing that I, you know, some of the best leaders, again, it's not super fancy, but the best leaders have good follow-up, right? And the best leaders ask good questions. And so we started doing that, understanding where we went off and following up quickly about it. And that made a huge difference. 
Yeah. Probably was important that you actually went through that experience because I got to believe that it didn't only turn that location around, but that has impacted all of the other locations in all of the other concepts that you have along the way. So, you know, you're, you're obviously a lifelong learner, Brit. What area of leadership do you think you still need to improve on? Oh man. (laughs) Well, if this podcast, if this podcast hasn't done it listening, right. Probably the fundamental characteristic that I think of the really smart and best leaders in my mind is they're able to ask great questions. Oftentimes, they don't even have the answer of whatever they're dealing with, but they are able to ask wonderful questions. So skill I really want to get better at is asking good questions, not just because you can find out where the problem is. But as I said, or we talked about earlier, which is checking for comprehension, you know, a vision, the communication piece is so important. Now I realize so I, I want to be a better communicator. And at first I thought that meant talking more and it doesn't. It actually means listening better and asking better questions and you're a better communicator. It's a trick, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a great one. So as, as we wrap up here, Britt, what, what advice would you give to someone that is maybe early in their career and about leadership and their own path? What piece of advice would you give them? Wow, that's a good question. I was thinking a little bit about this earlier today. And I guess, you know, the first thing is, it's easy to say, find your purpose, right? I mean, that would be great. That is a really hard thing to do. And if you look at my bookcase, I got a huge section uh, as I've been between each one of these opportunities going, okay, what colors my parachute and do the things you love, you never work and, you know, your purpose, all that stuff. That's hard. But if you can, Figure out what you would do if you could get up every day and not get paid for it. That's where you want to go. And then you'll get paid handsomely. Uh, I would also say put tools in your toolbox. One of my biggest advantages, I had a chance to do, uh, you know, tens of jobs before I settled into this. And again, I think if you had asked me, do you think you're going to be a restaurateur and do this? I would have laughed at you. To me, that was that, you know, golden corral manager with a short sleeve shirt and a tie that fit, <laughs> knocking on tables going, hey, I'll everything over here. Uh, it, nothing like that. So put tools in your toolbox. Surround yourself with the right people. Ask good questions. Be humble. Those are key things that I think have helped me not acting like I knew everything, you know, coming from Kentucky was always a tagline. Hey, say it real slow. I'm from Kentucky. I can't do math quickly. And that disarms people, but it also sets the table for you really do want to learn. And I think if folks see that, you'd be surprised. I, what I didn't realize until I got into this world, the small giants and that whole culture is there's a ton of people that want to share with you. It, they don't feel that it's a zero sum game, right? That it's if they're winning, you're losing or vice versa. I've found a ton of people that feel that the tide can rise all boats. And I, you got to get with that group as quickly as possible. Well, you've realized along the way that you're actually in the relationship business and doesn't mm-hmm. matter what the product is, doesn't matter how the food tastes. But your your curiosity has led you to continue to learn, and, and that toolbox is really full, and still you're adding things to it all the time, which is great to hear. Uh, I want to end, Britt, with these five quick hit questions, just sure. like the association game. Just name the first thing that comes to your mind. Can you name a leader a leader that you look up to? Oh, yes. I would say Arietta of uh, Zingerman's would be, Zingerman's, would be yeah. one. Yeah, yeah he's, he's great. Good stuff there. 
Yeah. How about a great book that influenced your leadership style? One that I went back and read again. Good to great. Get the right people on the bus. Make sure they're in the right seats. Such a yeah. key, solid message. And I, I, you know, everybody's read that from back. What is it? 25, 30 years old now. But I recently revisited it. And I got to tell you, that book's got some <laughs> timeless gems in it. It's a great one. It's got some staying power. How about an all-time favorite movie? Oh, tough too. I, I've, I've loved the Godfather just for that. I was studying that, but, uh, one that I just, again, saw recently, the sting, Robert Redford. Yeah. Woman. I great. love that. I love the sting. I saw that recently too. That's really great. And how about a favorite TV series you like to binge watch? Okay. So this is terrible, but, uh, and showing, showing some of my simpletonness, but I love Andy Griffith. Uh, I love the local <laughs> things that he has <laughs> and, you know, still in black and white. So that's a, that's a walk back memory lane in a, in a time and in an era that just while did exist is really hard to find now. That, that's for sure. That's a great one. And I will say the first time that one's been mentioned. Um, and lastly, I, bet. Um, that, I don't I don't know if you got one here, but Britt, what's one thing about you that many people don't know? Oh, wow. Um, I, I actually would say they would be surprised. I, I feel I'm going to take take one out of your deck there. I'm introverted. I would prefer to be by myself more than any anything else. And so I don't think people, if they saw our spoke with me would say that at all but i have heard your show before uh shows like this and it's surprising i think that characteristic is more prevalent in entrepreneurs than than maybe i mean you said it you know in introvert people didn't realize that about you i think i think it's true yeah but i think that what the reason they don't realize it is because they see your passion and when we're passionate about something we can talk we can engage and we enjoy it. And so it comes off, they go, you know, I've had people say the same thing to me. Oh my gosh, I never would have expected you to be that way. Uh, but they don't know that like once we, after we get up and talk, we just go crawl under the desk in the fetal position, <laughs> you know, um, you know, or if we're, we're at the conference, exactly. we can't wait to just get to get to our room and hang out by ourselves. Um, but uh, this is great, Britt. Like, wow, just so great to get to know you better and hear more about your story. I know there's so much more to go. Um, let me reflect a little bit on on what I learned today um, through your story. And and you started out with just a great message about the fact that that your life has had no real plan or blueprint, and people need to realize that life comes to us, and and when we work hard and we have good values, that uh, yes, there's 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 uh, luck as part of it. Um, there's, you know, we're fortunate, but, but we do create, I think our own destiny and you, and you've done a great job of doing that. Um, you know, you got into this industry, into the hospitality, the restaurant industry, really at the start of fast casual started out just as GM in that corporate location did such a wonderful job. You got promoted. And again, more opportunity comes to you when the co-founder, uh, approaches you about this new franchise, uh, with noodles. And, you know, now you've, gone into multiple concepts uh, uh, and um, all along this, you know, fast, casual route, um, everything from coffee to chocolate and um, kombucha, you know, you name it. Uh, I love how you said guests will never have a better experience than the employee has. And I think that's just something that we obviously believe, but to actually put that into practice and make it consistent, especially when you have multiple locations, especially when you're in an industry 
that's not always looked at as one that focuses on employee engagement is really wonderful. Um, and how you needed to be convinced yourself. You always thought it was about the product, but you know your partner and others just said, look, it's about culture and that now you can even track financial results. And so people need to understand that we, uh, we're not just doing this because it's the right thing to do. We're doing this because it's good for business and it's mm-hmm. going to help us grow. It's going to make us more profitable. Um, you know, your early influences, you know, of course, your first ex- true exposure to culture wasn't positive at the post office. Um, but you could come from this um, childhood growing up on the farm and seeing this hard work ethic that was drilled into you and seeing that, you know, entrepreneurship was in your family, small business in your blood. And um, you had to wear all the hats on the farm, just like you have to wear all the hats when you're starting a business. And then you have to go through the whole thing that says, well, now you don't have to wear all the hats. You can start to delegate and you have to go from wanting and keeping control to realizing it's all about the team that you build around you. Uh, And I, and I love how you instituted uh, as a result of this situation with this one restaurant, you know, one-to-ones and realizing that that people do leave their boss, that it's about the relationship I have in my company. And when we take time out of the day on a regular basis to sit down and just chat about how we're doing and what's going on, um, that changes engagement really overnight. And you've seen great results in that in terms of reduced attrition. Um, you were fortunate to have very encouraging and supportive parents along the way. Um, and um, lots of early jobs put lots of things in your toolbox, including confidence, right? The great story of Outward Bound and and um, how the you know the uh, the kid brought said to you, "Hey, Red Bear, you know I'm cold tonight," and you realized <laughs> you can't make assumptions about about people, what they know, what they don't know, um, and they don't necessarily have the same toolbox. And you, so to realize that there's a diversity of experience and opinion, and be sensitive to that. And then to share what you have with them is just uh, a real wonder, wonderful thing. And um, as we all did, you know, you guys got through the pandemic. It changed the industry uh, in some ways, uh, in some ways that are very good. You also realize that as much as we try to pay attention to the culture, that there are these subcultures that exist. And, and if we're uh, not careful, we may not actually know what's going on on the ground and it took uh, that lesson when, you know, the manager left and half the staff left and you had to start from scratch with that location, that it was really about listening and communication and understanding and then putting uh, culture in place. So it was a process just like any other process that you would have. Uh, and there's lots of process that's required to make a restaurant go, but you made culture a part of that process. Uh, and I love what, you know, that, that you're still working on yourself, those listening skills, uh, the ability to ask great questions. I just think that's a huge skill that we'll, we'll, we'll all continue to, to work on. And I finally love the advice you gave uh, to younger people. You know, it is, it is hard to just define your purpose, especially in those early years. Man, I probably wasn't in, get, didn't figure out my purpose until I was in my 40s or 50s or something. I'm still trying to figure sure. it out. Right. Um, but if you can find out something that you enjoy doing that you might do without getting paid, if you put those tools in your pool, toolbox and realize that every experience is going to contribute something to your life, you take something out of that and surrounding yourself with with good people. So uh, you're doing it the right way, Britt. Um, I, I, I think that the people that work in the in the restaurants, 
and facilities you support are um, very lucky to have someone like you with your sensibility and your focus on and creating a culture because that's creating great experiences and I can't wait to jump on a plane and, and come to Wisconsin and yeah. uh, try one of those grain bowls. But um, um, continued success to you. I know we'll continue to see you at Small Giants. And thank sure. you for being one of our mentors and sharing what you've learned with others. And and thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Well, Paul, I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, thanks for, for letting me share a little bit of this today. It, it was really fun. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to catching up when we're at Small Giants. Wonderful. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about purpose-driven leadership, go to smallgiants.org or follow us on social media. Until next time.